always, it is an honor and a great privilege to have this opportunity to worship with you and to preach to you from God's holy word. Well, this morning we are continuing in our consecutive exposition of the Gospel of Mark, and our text for today will be Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And so I invite you to turn there with me in your copy of the Word of God. The title of our sermon today is A Question About Fasting. And you should have an outline of the sermon in a handout, and that handout should also have some notes for the children. Well, this is the word of the Holy God, which is able to make us wise into salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So let us hear it and receive it with reverence and with joy. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, thus the reading of God's holy word, and may his people say, Amen. Let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessings as his word is preached. Our Father and our most gracious God, we do come before your word this morning with humility. We come understanding that apart from your grace, we will not understand your word in a saving or sanctifying way. And so we do plead for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we also understand that that you are a God who uses means. And so, Lord, we are not to just sit here passively as if you would just zap truth into our minds and hearts. And so, Father, I do pray that you would help us to diligently use the ordinary means that you have given for us to understand your word. Lord, help us to use our minds and our hearts well in this hour. And, Lord, I do pray that you would help me to speak with clarity. And I do pray that your people would be guarded against distraction so that they can hear well. And further, I do pray that all of us, both preacher and hearer, would render unto you acceptable worship as you speak to us from your word. And I ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin our exposition of this text, let's remind ourselves of the context in which these verses are found. Jesus has recently begun his public ministry in the region of Galilee, and he has relocated to the town of Capernaum, which has been serving as his home base in the early part of his public ministry. And he has been very busy preaching the good news that he has come to save sinners. And in addition to preaching the gospel, he has been engaged in healing the sick and in liberating the oppressed. 
And these miraculous works that, that he has been doing have served the purpose of authenticating the message that Christ has been preaching. And Jesus was in these early days of his public ministry enjoying much visible success in these labors. He consistently was drawing huge crowds from all over the region to come hear him preach or to see him perform miracles. In addition to this, Christ has been choosing his disciples that will later serve in the special office of apostle. Now, all of this sounds great, but that's not all that has been going on. It's kind of like hearing a church report. In most church reports, you will hear about all the good things that are going on in the church, and then you will hear about the struggles that the church is going through. And that seems to be the way that it is in Christianity. And we should expect that. Christ told his disciples in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, the following. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so as we consider the context of our passage, we need to remind ourselves that as we have moved into chapter 2 of Mark, that Jesus is beginning to face increasing opposition. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in the secret hostility of the scribes in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, where they accused Jesus in their hearts of committing the sin of blasphemy. And then last week we saw this opposition in the satanic questioning of the Pharisees in verse 16, where they were very clearly trying to lead the disciples of Jesus astray by calling the very character of their Lord into question. And we've noted that this increasing opposition is to be expected because Jesus, who is the light of the world, is ushering in his kingdom of light. And thus he is going to be fiercely opposed by the kingdom of darkness and its servants. And even there, brothers and sisters, as we consider that reality, we should stop and thank God for his grace in our lives. We should remember the pit from which we were dug. We were once the enemies of God. And there was a time that we were children of wrath who followed the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan. But in God's amazing grace, he did not leave us in that awful state, but rather he called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that we may join in with the people of God in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I do plead with anyone in this room who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in an awful state. Whether you realize it or not, you are a servant in the kingdom of darkness. But you do not have to remain in such a condition. Come to Christ by faith. He will forgive you, he will cleanse you, and he will place a robe of perfect righteousness upon you, and he will make you a child in his kingdom of light. But as we move into our text today, we understand that Jesus has been facing increasing opposition and we will see that once again in our passage today. Well, let's go back to verse 18 to analyze the opposition that Jesus faces in our passage. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, what we have here is a question 
that comes from an unidentified group of people in Mark's account. But the parallel account of this question recorded in Matthew seems to identify this group as the Pharisees. But then when you go to Luke's account of this event, he identifies this group as the disciples of John. So I think that what we can deduce from all three accounts in the Synoptic Gospels is that this group that is asking this question would likely have been comprised of both Pharisees and the disciples of John, and perhaps even other interested people. In other words, what we have going on is this. Jesus, who has claimed to be a religious leader, is being asked a religious question by religious people. And so we have a question about religion being put on the table, and it is being put on the table by those with an agenda. Well, there's no way that that, be that could become controversial, right? Well, I think we all know better than that. Let's dig into this question a little bit. And I want to do that by examining the following three aspects of this question. First, the subject of this question. Secondly, the occasion of this question. And thirdly, the implication of this question. So first, the subject of the question. The subject of this question is fasting. Now, this is a subject that as Protestant Christians, we must admit that we, that we don't really think about that subject very often. Now, there are other religious groups in the modern day that put a lot of emphasis on the subject of fasting. In Catholicism, fasting is a penitential practice of self-discipline that involves reducing or abstaining from food or drink. It is a way of expressing sorrow for sins and seeking God's grace. Catholics are obliged to fast for one hour before receiving the Eucharist and to abstain from meat on certain days, such as Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all Fridays during the time of Lent. In the religion of Islam, fasting is one of the five pillars of the religion. In other words, it is absolutely foundational to the whole religious structure of Islam. In fact, Muslims are obliged to dedicate an entire month every year to fasting in what they call the month of Ramadan. But in Protestant Christianity, we don't really discuss or emphasize fasting in that same way. That is not to say that Protestants don't fast or that we are opposed to fasting. In fact, earlier this very month, we as a congregation had a fast. But it is still a rare practice among Protestants. And, and the reality is that's not just true among 21st century Protestant Christians. Listen to these various quotes from well-known pastors in the history of Protestant Christianity. John Calvin in the 16th century writes, This practice, this practice of fasting, has not been abolished by the gospel. And hence it appears then how much we have departed from the right and lawful order of things. For at this day, that is in Calvin's day, it would be new and unusual for us to proclaim a fast. Moving forward about 200 years, listen to Jonathan Edwards. He says, Although ministers recommend and much insist on the duty of secret prayer in their preaching, very little is said about secret fasting. And then moving forward once more about 100 years into the late 19th century, we hear the Dutch Reformed pastor Abraham Kuyper hitting the same nail. He said, Today, that is in his day, there are still some found among the godly who fast, but very few. 
The practice has gradually died out. We no longer have congregational fast. We have become estranged from fasting as a means of edification. And so very clearly, fasting is something that has, throughout the history of the church, been something that is seen as, been, as foreign or strange to the people of God. Now, the obvious question that arises when we consider this is, is why? Why has this practice been so foreign among us? Well, to be sure, there are probably a multitude of reasons to account for this. One very clear reason is simply because of ignorance. Many of God's people don't know much about the practice of fasting, and therefore they are hesitant to engage in it if they engage in it at all. And to account for this ignorance, we must confess with Jonathan Edwards that this is a result, at least in part, to the fact that most ministers of the New Covenant simply don't teach on this practice very often. But I would submit to you that perhaps the greatest reason that this practice of fasting has become so rare among Protestant Christians is due to the fact that this particular practice has become associated with an external legalistic approach to religion. Where fasting is overemphasized, it usually happens within the context of a man-made or man-corrupted ritualistic religion. Fasting has often been associated with legalism and with works-based religions. And so in an effort to distance ourselves from the legalistic corruption of the practice of fasting, many Protestants have simply not spoken much about it, which I think is quite understandable. But it would still behoove us as Protestant Christians to gain a better understanding of how Jesus transforms the practice of fasting in the context of his new covenant kingdom, which I hope to address in a little more detail at the end of our sermon this morning. Now, with that background of why this practice of fasting is somewhat foreign to our ears in the 21st century, we need to now transport ourselves back into the first century, into the first century in the religion of Judaism, to better understand why this subject of fasting came up in this question. Now, when we look back on this question, we have this group who comes, and they are clearly confused as to why Jesus' disciples are not fasting. Because the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. In other words, they are confused because in their minds, the religion of the one true God required that its adherents were regularly engaged in the practice of fasting. Now, this assumption that these people had is actually quite interesting. Because when you go back and take a closer look at the Old Testament... You don't really see fasting as something that is really emphasized a whole lot in Judaism. Actually, for, for most of Jewish history, there was only one obligatory day of fasting, and that was on the annual Day of Atonement. This was the only day of the year that a Jew was commanded by God to fast. Hear what the Lord says to Israel in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 through 29. He says, now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. Now when it says afflict yourselves, what it is referring to is to fast. You shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord, and you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted, that is whoever does not fast, 
on that very day he shall be cut off from his people. And so we see here that fasting was associated with humbling or humiliating oneself before God on account of one's sin. Now, this does not mean that Jews never fasted outside of that particular day. But it was only on that particular day that it was commanded, that it was the law. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, what you will notice when you see accounts of Jewish people fasting is that for the most part, it was directly linked to the issue of sin. Perhaps a classic example of fasting in the Old Testament was when Moses, who had been fasting on the mountain in preparation to meet with God because of his sinfulness, came down the mountain to discover that the people had committed the sin of idolatry by worshiping a golden calf. It says that Moses once again fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, and he ate no bread and drank no water because of the sin of the people. At other times, we see that people would fast after seeing the effects or the consequences of sin, primarily death. If you remember at the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, when King Saul dies, God's people in their mourning fasted for seven days. And so once again, fasting in the Old Covenant was primarily linked to mourning over sin and its consequences. Now, much later in Jewish history, around a thousand years after the time of Moses, we see that there was a fast day added prior to the Feast of Purim. And this was to remember what God did in the book of Esther when God delivered his people from destruction while they were in Persian captivity. And so at that point, the Jews were to observe a fast day, the day prior to the feast day known as Purim. And that continues to this day in Jewish culture. And then in the book of Zechariah in chapter 8, we see that there were four additional fast days added. And this would have been after the people of Israel returned from exile back into their land. And so for the first thousand or so years of the Jewish nation, there was only one commanded day of fasting, which was the Day of Atonement. And then in the latter few hundred years, there were added five additional fast days. And so in the whole of the Old Testament, there was only a total of six annual fast days. The four given in Zechariah, the fast day before the Purim feast, and then, of course, the annual Day of Atonement. And so as we move into the first century context surrounding this question, we first notice John's disciples. It says they were fasting, and it appears that their fasting was outside of these six particular fast days, these six prescribed fast days. Now, why would John's disciples have been fasting? Well, what was the message of John the Baptist? What message did he come preaching? It was a message of repentance from sin. He was emphasizing the reality of sin and the necessity to mourn over one's sin leading to repentance. And so it would have been expected that John's disciples would have regularly participated in the practice of fasting as they were mourning over their sins. But what about the Pharisees and their disciples? It says also that they were fasting. Well, as you know, the Pharisees were known for their legalistic approach to the law of God. And further, they were known for adding to the law of God with their man-made traditions. Jesus, speaking of the Pharisees, says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. 
Well, one of these traditions that the Pharisees began to practice was the practice of fasting two days a week. They would have fasted on the second and the fifth days of each and every week, otherwise known as Mondays and Thursdays. And the Pharisees were known to make a big deal out of these fast days. They would, they would actually smear ash on their face to draw attention to themselves to let everybody know that they were fasting. Jesus explicitly condemned this practice in Matthew chapter 6. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, speaking of the Pharisees, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Now, not only were the Pharisees engaging in a practice that the Lord never commanded, but unlike the disciples of John, who would likely have been fasting as a means to mourn over their sin, the Pharisees had turned the practice of fasting into a meritorious work, whereby they really thought that they were indebting God to them. They completely turned the very purpose of Old Covenant fasting upside down. The purpose of fasting in the context of the Old Covenant was a recognition of your sin and of your need for the grace of God. But the Pharisees had turned fasting into something totally different. And that leads us to the, to the occasion of this question. What was it that brought about this question? Well, if you remember from last week, when we were looking at verses 13 through 17, what was taking place? Well, Jesus had called Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. And in response to this, Levi decided to host what we called a redemption party, where he invited Jesus and his disciples along with a whole host of tax collectors and sinners. And he held literally in the Greek a mega feast, the exact opposite of a fast. And then when the question arose about why he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, you remember Jesus' response. He said, that he had not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And last week we made the point that this statement did not mean that Jesus really thought that there were some who were righteous and some who were sinners, and that he didn't come for these righteous ones, but he came for these sinful people. No. As noted last week, all men are sinners. All men have broken the covenant of works. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. And so the point that Jesus was making in that statement was that he came to call those that understood that they were sinners, that they were breakers of this covenant, and that their only hope was that Jesus Christ would save them from their sins. That's who he came to call. He did not come to call those who thought that they could be made right with God through the keeping of the law. No man has ever been justified through works of the law. That's what Jesus was teaching. You cannot be righteous in the sight of God through your law-keeping. That's exactly what the Pharisees believed and what they taught. Remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. Matter of fact, if you would, turn with me to Luke 18. And let's notice together verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> it 
It reads, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this parable was told to those who thought that they could be considered righteous through their own works, through their own keeping of the law. Jesus goes on to give the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Does that ring a bell? In the context of our passage today, remember Levi was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So this Pharisee in this parable is claiming to be righteous in and of himself. Now what evidence does he supply to prove his own righteousness? He says, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. So he appeals to his tradition of fasting as a means of earning God's favor. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the other being the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The occasion of this question about fasting comes on the heels of this mega feast that Levi is hosting. And this may be a bit of speculation, but perhaps Levi held this feast on either a Monday or a Thursday, on one of the fast days of the Pharisees. It would seem to me that it would have been the Pharisees who stirred up this group to ask this question about fasting. And that leads us in the third place to the implication of this question. As we have seen in this chapter so far, Jesus is facing a constant barrage of opposition from the Pharisees. And thus we should not, thus we should not mistake this question for being an innocent inquiry into the subject of fasting. No, this question, like the question we saw last week, was satanic in its agenda. Underlying this question is an implied accusation. The Pharisees would have been teaching that Jesus and his disciples were sinners. They would have been teaching that Jesus was teaching his disciples that it was okay to break the law of God. And so the common people who would have been hearing all of this noise, all of this gossip, and all of this discussion that was surrounding this man named Jesus may very well have begun to wonder why Jesus didn't seem to be concerned or didn't seem to be as concerned as the Pharisees or even John's disciples about righteousness and the keeping of the law. And so we've seen the subject of this question, the occasion of this question, and the implication behind the question. Now let us turn our attention to Jesus' response to the question in verses 19 through 22. Let's read, those quest- let's read those verses once more. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does... 
The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, Jesus responds to this question, as he so often does when he is facing opposition, with parabolic language. He gives three parables, one in verses 19 and 20, and then two parables in verse 21 and verse 22. Let's notice the first parable that Jesus responds with. In verse 19, Jesus responds to this question about fasting with a parabolic and rhetorical question of his own. He says, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, of course, the answer is no. And Mark adds a detail here that leaves no doubt to the answer. He records Jesus' answer to his own question. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Here, of course, the metaphor is meant to draw our minds to the context of a wedding feast in the context of first century Judaism. A wedding feast was not a wedding fast. A wedding is a time of celebration. And it is a time where we see two individuals brought together into a covenant union. Remember the primary purpose of Old Covenant fasting. It was, to, it was to be done in the context of mourning over sin and its consequences. As Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. And so following the same principle, there is a time to fast and there is a time to feast. And certainly a wedding was no time to fast. And so Jesus is here very strongly making the point that his presence is an indication that it is a time to celebrate and to feast and not a time to mourn and to fast. The long-awaited coming of the Anointed One, the long-awaited coming of the Christ, the, the one who would take away the sins of the world, the long-awaited appearing of the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, it was here and it was a time to celebrate. The glory of the Lord had been revealed. The angels cried out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Jesus was making that known as he responded to their question. Let's dig a little deeper into the metaphor that Jesus gives. Jesus identifies himself here as the bridegroom. And this is interesting because what we are seeing as we progress through Mark chapter 2 is that time and time again, Jesus is identifying himself with the covenant God of Israel. He is identifying himself as Yahweh or Jehovah. Notice, if you would, back in verse 10 of chapter 2. There he takes the title, Son of Man which is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Daniel where the Son of Man is identified as divine. He confirms this with the very next statement in verse 10 where he says that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then as we drop down to verse 17 of chapter 2, we notice that Jesus identifies himself as the physician. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the God of Israel is revealed as the one who brings healing to his people. He is the great physician. 
And Jesus is making the point that he is that same God. Well, we have the very same thing going on here in verse 19, where Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. If you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. And let's notice together verses 4 and 5. This is God speaking to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And this is one of the most beautiful prophecies that I've ever read. It says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What Jesus is saying in verse 19 of Mark 2 is that he is that bridegroom that has come to rejoice over his people. And thus the only appropriate response from his people is to rejoice and to celebrate that their bridegroom has come and is standing in their very presence. You see, brothers and sisters, this, this imagery of the bridegroom is so critical for us to grasp. What is the very nature of Christianity at its core, at its very essence? Is it not to be brought into a covenant union with God himself? How does one become a Christian? One becomes a Christian because they are brought into covenant union with God by grace through faith. What is the very substance of the Christian life? It is communion and fellowship with God. And what is the, the telos or the end goal of Christianity? To dwell with our covenant God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Christianity from beginning to end is all about a covenant relationship with God who is our bridegroom. And so what we have here is that Jesus has masterfully turned the question around. We have Christ staring back into the very eyes of those who would question and rebuke him, and he is questioning them and rebuking them. It is as if he is saying to this group, I am the bridegroom. I am the very God who you claim to love. Why then are you fasting and not rejoicing in my presence? Now, in verse 20, Jesus will go on to say that there will be a time where it is appropriate to fast. But I want to come back to verse 20 at the end. So let's move forward and look together at verses 21 and 22. Jesus here gives two parables back to back that teach the same truth. We'll read those verses once again. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, as is the case with many of the parables that Christ gives in the Gospels, interpretations of what the parables mean are often as numerous as the number of interpreters themselves. 
And so just as a reminder to you concerning how to approach a parable, we must remember that generally speaking, parables teach one main point. And therefore, we should not read parables as if they are written in some kind of code language where we're trying to find some secret hidden meaning in the various word pictures of the parable. No, we need to understand that Jesus is trying to make a point with a parable. And further, when Jesus gives parables, he is making a point that has something to do with his kingdom. And because you cannot separate Christ's kingdom from Christ's covenant, often parables will teach us something convey or concerning the very covenant of which Christ mediates. With that in mind, let us take a closer look at these parables. First, Jesus uses the analogy of repairing a tear in an old garment. Well, as we all know, a garment that when you buy when you buy a new garment, it does not set, it does not stay the same size as the day that it was woven together. But after it is washed and dried, it will shrink a certain amount. And Jesus is making a very obvious point that all of his hearers would have understood. You don't take an untrunk piece of cloth to repair an old garment. Because when that untrunk piece of cloth shrinks, it is going to tear away from the old garment. And so the basic point is clear. You can't put new and old together. It does not work. And so better to discard the old garment and get a new garment. Well, in the second parable, Jesus makes the exact same point. In that time period, wine skins would have been made out of the skin of a young goat that would have been sewn together in such a way that it could be used as a container for wine. And because the skin was new or fresh, it would have had a certain amount of elasticity, which made it a suitable container for new wine, which we all know expands as the process of fermentation continues. If the wine skin was old, it would lack the necessary elasticity, and thus the new wine would expand to the point of bursting, or as we say in South Georgia, it would have busted the, the old wine skins wide open, leading to a loss of the wine. Again, the point is very clear. You don't put new and old together. It does not work. And so better to discard the old wineskin and get a new wineskin. Well, that's wonderful that we've just gotten a lesson on what to do with old clothing and how to store new wine. But that's not the point of the parables, of course. And so what are these parables teaching? Well, what we have here is that Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. Remember Mark 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And clearly what that meant was because Christ the king was present, his kingdom was present. And with this kingdom, he is establishing the new covenant which had been promised in the Old Testament. And so very clearly what Jesus is teaching is this. You cannot put the old covenant and the new covenant together. You can't mix them. You can't add the new covenant to the old covenant. You can't squeeze the new covenant into the forms of the old covenant. They don't fit. It does not work. And thus, there is to be a discarding of the old and an ushering in of the new. This confusion between old and new will continue into the early life of the church. And we can even argue that it continues until this day. In fact, 
Paul has to address this confusion quite severely in the epistle to the Galatians. In that epistle, Paul addresses the heresy of the Judaizers. And if you're not familiar with that heresy, what they were teaching was that, that yes, you needed to believe in Jesus, but you also had to conform to the old covenant law, specifically the law concerning circumcision. They were mixing the old and the new covenants. And Paul did not mince words in his refutation of this heresy. He said that these Judaizers were teaching a different gospel, which was no gospel at all. He went on to say that those who persist in teaching this false gospel will be cursed by God. In other words, they will go to hell. The point is clear. You cannot mix the old covenant with the new covenant. The book of Hebrews teaches us that when the new covenant came in, the old covenant is made obsolete, and thus it is abrogated. It passes away. Now, that begs this question. Why would the old covenant, which was given by God, why would it vanish? Why would God make it obsolete? And why would God make what was once good and right now be something that was heretical and thus fatal to cling on to? It was because the old covenant served a particular and temporary purpose. But with the coming of the new covenant, the old covenant's purpose has finished. It has been completed. You see, the old covenant was never meant in and of itself to bring salvation to God's people. The old covenant law, its moral, civil, and ceremonial laws were never meant to be a way of salvation. Remember, no one has ever been justified through works of the law. You see, the whole point of the rigor of the old covenant law was to drive Israel to look not at themselves and their own ability to keep that law, but to look to God and to the provisions he made to deal with their sin. And the provisions that God made for his people in the context of the old covenant were types and shadows that pointed to Christ and the covenant of which he mediates. The old covenant was typological in nature. I think, a, I think a good analogy of this is as follows. Suppose a man had to be separated from his wife for a very long time. Let's say a deployment. Well, I would expect that this man would want a picture of his wife with him as he was away. But when he finally got to come home, he would no longer need the picture because he would have his wife in person. Could you imagine how strange and inappropriate and downright sinful it would be if a man came home after a deployment and instead of embracing his wife, he just brushed her off and preferred the picture of her over his actual wife? You might say that if that was the case, that he had completely misunderstand, misunderstood the very purpose of the picture. You would say that the man did not truly love his wife. You see, the old covenant is like a picture. But in the new covenant, you have the person of Christ standing before you. You have the bridegroom, and thus you no longer need the picture. In fact, it would be sinful to prefer the picture over the person. Well, that's exactly what was happening when the Jews 
were preferring the external topological forms of the old covenant over Christ himself. Jesus says as much to the Pharisees in John 5, verses 39 and 40. Remember when he said, You search the scriptures, the, the old covenant, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisees missed the whole point of the old covenant. The old covenant was given to point to Jesus Christ. And so to miss Christ standing before their very eyes was tragic. But the Pharisees took it one step further. And thus they committed the same error that is true of every false religion. They turned the law of the old covenant into a means of salvation in and of itself. They had so misunderstood the old covenant that they thought they, that they could receive salvation by trying to keep the law. And in this pursuit, they so, they so watered down the law of God by building this superstructure of man-made rituals that they actually thought they were righteous before the holy God. They thought that their fasting and tithing, for example, could earn God's favor. And this is why in Luke's account of this parable, he adds this statement, And no one after drinking the old desires the new, for he says the old is good. These Pharisees had so deceived themselves that they thought that their attempts at keeping the old covenant law of God was good enough to quench their thirst for salvation. And because they saw themselves as righteous, they were not thirsty for the living water that only Christ can provide. They did not desire the new wine that brings salvation. Brothers and sisters, may we never deceive ourselves into thinking that we can be good enough to merit our salvation. No amount of fasting, no amount of praying, no amount of church attendance, no amount of good works of any kind can merit your salvation. Salvation comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The only way for you to be saved is to be united to Jesus by faith in the covenant of which he mediates, which is to be granted entrance into the kingdom of God. And so never be tempted to look for another way. You must come into the sheepfold through the door. And Christ says in John 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You can't enter in by way of your own righteousness. So come to Christ on his terms with nothing in your hand. Come trusting in him and him alone for your salvation. Well, in closing, let us return to quickly look at verse number 20. Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Here, Jesus is making the point that although it is inappropriate to fast in the presence of the bridegroom, during his first advent, there is coming a day where it will be appropriate to fast again. Now, this is a very clear prophecy that Jesus is giving of his coming death. 
In fact, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus makes mention that he will suffer and die. Granted, he does this in a very subtle way. The language that the bridegroom will be taken away is a reference to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verse 8, where it says, by oppression and judgment, he will be taken away. Now, some commentators have tried to make the point that the only appropriate time to fast in the context of the new covenant would have been while Jesus lay in the tomb. But after the resurrection, it would no longer be appropriate to fast. I do not think that 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 is a is an accurate interpretation of what Jesus is teaching here. We clearly see in the book of Acts and other places in the the New Testament occasions where the new covenant people of God, after the resurrection, fasted. As we noted earlier from Calvin, the gospel or the new covenant has not abolished fasting. But the new covenant has abolished fasting in its old covenant form. Remember, what was the primary, primary purpose of fasting in the Old Covenant? To mourn over sin and its consequences. But in the New Covenant, our fasting has been transformed into a joyful practice. You see, because Christ has accomplished our salvation, because we have been granted entrance into His kingdom, and we have been united to Him in His covenant, we can have assurance that our sins are forgiven. And so now our fasting is to, to, is to be engaged in as a means by which we seek to see our king's kingdom advanced. <clears throat> we see that the new covenant people of God in the New Testament fasted primarily as a means that they might be granted clarity and wisdom to make important decisions in the life of the church. Our confession picks up on this and makes the point that it, it, that it is appropriate to fast when considering whether or not to lay hands on a man for the office of elder. So don't you see how fasting has been transformed in the new covenant? It goes from being for the purpose of mourning over sin to a positive act of seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Now, we need to bring this sermon to a close, but I would add further one occasion where it is appropriate to fast in the context of the new covenant. Our bridegroom is not here. He has been taken away. And we are eagerly awaiting for his return. But we all have a tendency to grow slack in our longing for the coming again of Christ. And usually this comes as a result in delighting in the gifts that Christ gives more than Christ himself. And so it may be appropriate for you to fast when your mind is focused more on the things of this earth on the blessings that the bridegroom has given you than on the bridegroom himself. Dear ones, may the words of the old hymn be true of us. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. And so if you're eyeing the garment more than the bridegroom's face, you may need to fast from that and refocus. But there will come a time once again when fasting will no longer be appropriate. At the second advent, when the bridegroom returns and welcomes all of his people to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to that eternal feast day, we'll no longer need to fast. 
fasting will be done away with at that time. And oh, may we long for that day. But dear ones, remember this. In order to be invited to that wedding feast, you must be wearing the wedding, wedding garment. And that garment is nothing less than the righteousness of Christ given to those who believe upon Him, to those who love Him and treasure Him above all else. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be invited to that wedding feast. You must believe upon Christ. Well, we have once again seen a little piece of the life and the ministry of our Lord. And so may we understand that this account of this question about fasting and Jesus' response has been, has been recorded for us for one great purpose. Why was this account place in the scriptures that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and that by believing you may have life in his name may the Lord bless you and keep you let's pray Holy Father we do thank you once again for your word and how it reveals to us your son the savior of sinners Father, may you grant us to believe, may you grant us grace to believe upon him, to the saving and the sanctifying of our souls. And may Christ receive all the glory, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you would please stand.